We're going to read verses 22 through 25, and this is in verses 32 and 33 as we continue our fairly lengthy series looking at, um, at marriage. I hope this has been helpful for you, even though we've kind of, this has been a lot of the theology of marriage. I hope, uh, I think if you are taking this, listen to this, but also taking the class on Sunday mornings, you have been getting both the 30,000 foot view, but also a lot of the, the ground level um, issues, practical issues that are in marriage, and we hope this has been really helpful. Um, you know, it's really important, though, that this doesn't simply remain in our heads and simply in discussions and community groups, uh, right? This is going to require work. You have to actually do the work and, and have these conversations as individual couples uh, about uh, what does this look like for us to see transformation in our marriage, for our marriage to reflect the glory of the gospel. All right, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 25, verse 22, picking up there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Dropping down to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. And may the word of our God, may it stand forever. Well, the wedding industry is a $72 billion industry. Did you know that? It is enormous. Now, if you've, if you've uh, been a part of paying for a wedding at any time in the last couple of years, you're well aware of that, and you're going, yes, I have whole body parts I sold off in order to participate in that industry. Uh, it is built around the idea, though, that uh, marriage is about, all about us. Uh, weddings are increasingly becoming an exercise in self-expression. In fact, there's actually a, a whole movement called the personalization of weddings, where couples make their wedding profoundly unique. They, they, they go down to the very nitty-gritty detail that they have to come up with. I think this is one of the most important decisions that a, an engaged couple makes in getting ready for their wedding, and that is their own personalized hashtag. Hashtags are really important. But everything about the wedding used to be unique. This is our special day. Engagements now have their own photo shoots, followed by social media blitzes, and then more photo shoots, and then more photo shoots. In the last 10 years, though, it's incredible. As much as weddings cost, even when Meredith and I got married 15 years ago, the cost of an engagement ring has doubled in the last 10 years. In the pursuit of the ever of the elusive place of uniqueness. I have to have a, a ring unlike any other wing. And the average cost, wedding cost now, has doubled to now being around $36,000 per wedding. A bit of wisdom, if you're engaged, have a simple wedding, take the rest of the $36,000 and put the down payment on a house, for crying out loud. Your older self will thank you for that. If you're a parent, do us all, the rest of us, a favor and give your kid 10 grand to elope. That would be great as well. <laughs> you know, people use an average of 13 vendors to pull off their wedding. Uh, there is an, an inherently, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong about uh, having a big and special day. Weddings are special and they're lovely and there's something very profound and beautiful about them. 
There is nothing wrong about choreographing your first dance and spending months in advance to show everybody that, yes, you actually are compatible on the dance floor. However, if the wedding becomes an exercise in self-expression, then it is possible then that is going to be the gateway to your marriage being nothing but nothing more than a being about your own personal self-fulfillment. But what if marriage is ultimately not about us? It's not about your views of what romance ought to be or your own personal sexual fulfillment. What if it's about something bigger and better and more cosmic and more eternal? That is what we're looking at in this series, and that is the point of Ephesians 5, that God had the gospel in mind when he formed the first marriage. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul actually points out and saying, the reason why I'm saying that marriage points to the marriage between Christ and his church, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, saying that from the very beginning, marriage has been pointing to Christ's love for his church. God put marriage forth in the earth to be a place where God reveals as a picture in a drama before the world, mimicking God's love for his people. Marriage is meant to to demonstrate the divine romance. Last week, or a couple weeks ago, I described it as this, that it is gospel reenactment. It is a high school play. There's the husband and the wife, and they each have a role to play. Now, last week, we looked at the role of the wife in this gospel play, in this gospel reenactment. And now we're going to look at the husband's role. And we're going to take two weeks on this. And you might immediately go, well, either you're you're a guy and you're going, oh boy, two weeks. Two weeks. Or some of you are, you know, it's like, oh, here we go. More importance about the male. Two weeks. Well, let me just say, Paul gives 40 words in the Greek to the responsibility of wives in marriage. He gives 115 words to the responsibility of men in marriage, and so we have a lot to get through. But far more importantly than the word count of 115 is the word count of three. You see, three times, very explicitly and very clearly, Paul tells husbands that their call in the marriage is to love their wife. He says at the beginning, the middle, and the end, he makes it abundantly clear. Love. And love is the central message and the central call of the Christian life. Asked to describe God, the Bible says in 1 John that God is love. The early Romans said of the Christians that they were known by their love. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus says, I have a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. The pursuit of love is, all, is what it's all about, even as a Christian life. That is the ethic that we are to live our life around. Paul says this in another place. He says, if I have not love, I am nothing. Men, you can be the greatest businessman, but if you have not love, then you are. You can be the greatest coach, but if you have not love, then you are. You can be the greatest entertainment and athletics, but if you have not love. You can be the greatest at real estate and finance. You can be in great at ministry, but if you have not love. And you can even be so right and so truthful and so logical that you win every argument with your wife, but if you have not love, you're a dead man. The purpose of marriage is about showcasing the love of Jesus, a living enactment of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And for the next two weeks, we're going to do a 360 look at what Paul says about the husband's love. This morning will be a kind of, I would say, at a little higher elevation, 
And then next week, we're going to drop it down a little bit to some more, um, a little more narrow focus. But we begin this morning by looking at the position from which the husband loves. Because there is a position that God gives him that helps him love. And that position, though, is rather, is rather um, difficult for some people to swallow, as we looked at last week. Point one is this, headship. Headship. God gives the position of, to husbands of head in the marriage. That is the position from which we are to strive to love our wives. Headship, that is the call. When God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned, God knocks on the door of the garden and he says, may I speak to the head of house, the household? And then he immediately begins speaking not to Eve, but to Adam. The role of headship of the husband sets off many of the exact same alarm bells that we dealt with in great detail last week. That call to submit is difficult for us to swallow, and it's, it's right along with it is the call that husbands are to have, be the head in the household. And the abuses ha, uh, that have been justified using this term headship have made that all the more difficult. The very same abuses that we addressed last week, we must address this week, but let's just simply say this. Here's what headship doesn't mean as a way of re-articulating what we said last week. It doesn't mean that the husband is superior in worth or value. Headship does not mean that the husband has naturally greater capacity than his wife. Often she is actually has much greater capacity. It doesn't mean the husband can ask the wife to do things that violate God's law. It doesn't mean a husband has the right to treat his wife in whatever way he sees fit. It doesn't mean a husband must be the primary moneymaker. The husband must carry out all the specific tasks that the culture deems are the masculine things to do. It doesn't mean the husbands are the head of any other woman. Simply because he's the head of the wife does not mean that he can be bossing people around everywhere else. It doesn't mean that the husband's in the role as head can demand or enforce submission from his wife. She has to give that to him as a gift of her love and affection. So that was what we very quickly, a review of last week, what it doesn't mean for husbands to be the head. Well, I've listed off a bunch of things that headship isn't, but I also need to be clear about what, husband, what headship also is not. And headship is also not nothing. It is also not nothing. It ain't nothing. Right. This is not a ceremonial role, the role of headship. One of the ways in which interpreters and theologians who are doing theological work out of their own personal discomfort sometimes from what the Bible says, and they look at this and they hear that the wife is supposed to submit and the husband is supposed to be the head, is they take this word for headship in the Greek here, and they say, well, actually headship in its most literal term means source. And indeed, headship literally does mean source. In our language, it, 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 for head sometimes means source, doesn't it? When we talk about uh, headwaters, that that is the, the lake or the spring that is the source for the rest of the river, where we to limit the meaning of the word only to source, we would understand this text to simply mean this. The husband is the head of the wife as meaning only that the man preceded his wife creationally and that she was created from him. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God took Eve from Adam. He formed Eve from Adam. But headship does not merely mean source in the Bible. In the 2,336 instances of the use of the term in all of ancient Greek literature, there are no clear instances where the word only carries the idea of source as its origin, okay? This is why we actually, part of um, 
my, my wife and I have a friend who went, got his MDiv from seminary and then went on to Princeton. This shows you how deeply we seek to do good work as interpreters of the Bible. It's his, his job, he went on after learning Hebrew in seminary, he went to Princeton to go study Akkadian and Ugaritic because they are partner language with ancient Hebrew. And by learning Akkadian and Ugaritic, he can better understand Hebrew so that we can better interpret it. In other words, when we interpret the Bible, we're using all the resources at hand. And all the resources at hand tell us this word does not merely mean source. Further, the passages of the context and the call to wives to submit reveal that this term, more than simply making a creational and biological observation, is saying that the husband is the, has the role of authority, that that's what it means to be head, that he has a position of authority. The wife is called to submit because he has a role of authority in the marriage. Now, that created order in which Adam is the source from which God makes Eve is actually the ground from which Paul makes this call to husbands to be the head. So headship means authority, and it's woven into and actually grounded in the created order. He said, in God's providence, for some reason, because he made Adam first, he says, this is the reason I'm also making him the head and the authoritative one. And understand Paul here saying that men bear this role. He is not saying, husbands, you be the head. The language here that Paul uses is not an imperative. This is not a command. This is given in the indicative tense, which means he is saying, whether you want the role or not, it's yours, big fella. It's yours. I have put you there. So we need to understand what authority is, what this headship is. What is meant by this term headship? How are we to understand it? As the head, let me see if I can give you this definition, and we'll kind of slice this out in two very simple terms to, to, to remember. As the head, the husband is given positional authority to influence his family for their good and for God's glory, and therefore... He bears the responsibility before God for his wife and family. He's given a position, a position of authority, not for his own benefit, but for the good of his wife and for his family, for the glory of God, and therefore God looks at him and he holds him responsible. Now, that, no one wants to choke on a uh, pastor's definition of headship, so let me simply give you two words. As head, it means the husband has influence an out-proportioned influence. Because of your propositional authority, you bear inherent influence on the family. And it is an influence you have whether you want it or not. It cannot be helped. You are a tone setter, whether you mean to be or not. Husbands, you cannot in escape the influence. God has wired it in creationally that the husband sets the tone and the temperature for the marriage in the home. Therefore, how are you using your influence, men? If you use the influence of authority to carry out a harsh and critical, tyrannical reign in the household, you are not only accountable for that before God, but there are often dire temporal consequences because of your sin. Let me just give you an example of this. Look at the life of King David. We have almost no better description of what we would think of, even the world would say, as a masculine man than King David. And yet David, in his own family, was a ruler who wasn't actually this tyrannical ruler in his family, but actually was known for his passivity. 
That he actually, and because of his sins with Bathsheba, and because when one son raped another, another daughter, he did nothing, there are dire temporal consequences for him as a husband, as a father. If you use the influence of authority to remain aloof and distant from your family, that, is, that too is going to have consequences. If you're passive in your leadership, where you abdicate responsibility to lead, then that too will have consequences of its own for your household. But if you understand that your position is inescapable and you embrace it as the scriptures call you, then your leadership can be one and embrace it as the one as Christ has called you to live out, then you'll be one of warmth, of affection. You'll be engaged, tender, loving, firm, strong, and instructive. That atmosphere has marvelous blessings for your wife and your children to lead them to joy and to peace. Your presence and your absence will affect your home unlike any other presence or absence. Now, understand this. That does not mean wives don't have incredible influence in the household. Absolutely not. And a strong woman can compensate for your absence and abdication of your role. And by God's grace, she can overcome many of the weaknesses of your leadership and your own flaws and failings. But men, your leadership is God's irrevocable design. It is a blessing, even while you feel like it's a curse. It is to be a blessing to the nations, to your wife and to your children. And while your wife can mitigate the natural, sometimes, and temporal consequences of your failings, understand that before God, you are the accountable one. You're the one who God looks for when there's issues in the household. And therefore, that brings us to our second simple word. First influence, second responsibility. Responsibility. Headship means the husband bears responsibility. The husband is the one held accountable. I love the word of, word of the way Tony Evans describes this uh, in kind of a, a funny way of saying He says, spiritual headship is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man in the face. Men, you have the answer to God before the care, for the care, provision, and growth in life of your family. A definition as being the one responsible for our family, for our family feels like an incredible weight. But I actually want you to understand that that is the high point of male nobility. Last week we talked about this role, this idea that women are in a zare, that they're a helper. And that some people hear that word helper and we say, oh, that degrades her dignity. In actuality, we looked at this, how, how God uses the word zare, that it actually means that she is the helper where her husband is not strong, where he is weak. That it all usually refers to God. Well, in the same way, this call is a call to your dignity and your nobility as a man. This is the highest point of what it means to be a man, is you take responsibility. And it renders the images of manliness that idealize personal independence and family disinterest and the sport in life as being nothing but a being a boyish immaturity. The way our world has described masculinity and being a man is actually, the Bible would say, is quite childish. The Marlboro Man and Nickelode Weeklands represent true manhood as well as a five-year-old in a cowboy hat resembles John Wayne. True manhood is one that says, I am the responsible one. Hold me accountable. My children are walking away from the Lord. I am the one who will go after them. I am the one who's responsible. I am the one whose job it is to provide, to care, to lead, 
to give spiritual provision for our household. And he has given that place of authority not to oppress, but to lovingly seek the growth of their wife and their children for their development and joy. And so men, my call to you this morning is just like there was a call to women to submit to their role, men, you have to submit to this role as well. To say, I am willing to be the one who's held accountable. I am willing before God to be held accountable for the nourishment and the cherishment and the growth of my wife and family. That's the call. Will you take up that call, men, or will you misuse the position you're given? What are some ways in which men usually misuse this position? Some of you, some of you in your fear and insecurity, you've been given a role that feels above your head, and so the way you've had to do that is to try to hold up your place of authority in the household with a machismo and a declaration that everybody must, must, must submit to your iron-fisted rule in the house. This headship is as far from the headship of Jesus Christ as heaven is from hell. The Lord calls you men to loving leadership into a role of what my own father said is, a, is leading lovership. Even more of you, though, will fail in your headship but it won't be simply because of iron-fisted rule. I think far more of us, it looks like just plain old simple childish selfishness. I don't want to. And so I'm going to go do that instead. And I'm the head, and I have work a 40-hour-a-week job, and I drive a Dodge Stratus, as Will Ferrell says, and so it, I'm going to go hunt every weekend, and I'm going to abandon my family. I'm going to sit in a lazy chair when I want to. You use your headship as the cover for your selfishness as you bail on your wife and your kids with too many hours at work or at the golf range or fishing or working out or hunting. This is plain selfishness. Will you take up this position and this task or, and here's I think the most significant way we fail in this, will you simply abdicate by your own passivity? I think far more of us are tempted to abdicate responsibility through passivity because we look at it and we think, this is hard, this is risky, I don't want to be held accountable for this, she's better at it than I am, so I may as well back off. Or the husbands who, rather than, so what this looks like is the husband who, rather than confronting his wife and her failures as a mother or a wife or simply a follower of Jesus, remains quiet when he actually should step in. It's the husband who simply remains passive when his children are running around, rebelling and running recklessly. And he's like, well, she can handle it. Or the husband who finds life just easier if he lets his wife make all the decisions. Mind you, I'm not saying that headship and leadership does not mean that your wife is not your primary counselor. She is your best gift and counselor, as we looked at last week. It's not because he doesn't have opinions or desires, but he simply doesn't want to be held responsible for the consequences and the risks of this decisions. And so if things go badly in God's prominence, well, I can look at the wife, as has been the tradition of man since the fall of Adam, and go, listen, this went, out, went badly, it's her fault. I'll point to Eve and say, she made me do it. She wanted it, it's her fault. No, husbands, you don't get off. It's your responsibility. But abdication, which mere, appears to be so harmless, on the surface, passivity, which appears to be, well, I'm just, I'm kind of, I'm gentle, well, actually, can actually be have profoundly destructive in your household. When men do not stand up and take responsibility, when men are silent in the face of temptation and evil, this has been our failing from the dawn of time. 
You know, one of the questions that, that theologians ask when they look at Genesis chapter 3, when the, evil, when the serpent comes and is tempting Eve with the, with, the, uh, with the forbidden fruit, they ask this question, where was Adam? Where were you? Why is Adam silent in the face of the lies of the evil one who is coming to destroy, and yet in the face of the voice of the evil one, the man stays silent? Silence. The silence of Adam and the silence of fathers and the silence of husbands is the most destructive silence in the world. Read one story in a book at one point about the testimony of a one woman who, for years and years, she talked about the destruction of her life as, as a teenage girl and how she was giving herself to guy after guy who would, night after night, sneak into her bedroom. She said, Well, yes, that was incredibly damaging to my identity. She said the most damaging thing, though, was that while she was the one who was acting out and sinning indeed, and she was responsible for that, the damaging thing, though, was that her father, who knew, knew that these men were sneaking into her bedroom, remained silent. He never stepped in. He never confronted her. He never knocked on the door. He never demanded that they leave. And so because of that, it wasn't simply the treatment of these men, it was the treatment of her father that declared to her what her worth. Her worth was not him fighting for her. It was not worth him being willing to make her really mad at him. Because he said, I'm, I'm okay with you being mad at me because I love you too much and you're too valuable for me to let this happen to you. This is not talking about the disposition of man who is not very talkative. It is not talking about the disposition of man who is loud or quiet. It is talk, this is, I'm talking about the silence. It's talking about this disposition of a man whose job it is to step in, but where, he de, where he's supposed to step in, he is silent. He does not act. For his life and for his mouth, the call for man, in as many or few words, is to speak into this world in word and deed. Dr. Larry Crabb, who is a Christian um, psychiatrist, um, I think has written the best on the best work on gender, the identity of masculinity and femininity. Um, he's got a number of books, one called Finally Alive, where he looks at men and women and their differences. But his, his book he wrote even before that on manhood, it was called The Silence of Adam. You can find it now, it's been republished simply under the title Men of Courage. Dr. Crabb died just a couple of years ago, but here's what he said in that book, Men of Courage. God created men in his image to move into other people's lives. Even when we're afraid. So I talked about last week. The great fear of man is our inadequacy. Even when we're afraid to make a difference and to leave a legacy. He created men to bring redemption to a tragic world by reflecting God's movement as we relate to others. God always moves in. He is the initiator and the pursuer. He created men strong to protect the boundaries of those around it. He created them to have vision for other people and to move into their lives to advance that vision. He goes on to say later in the book, the man of courage is one who says, I love my family and I love people and I love Christ and therefore I am not going to run. I would rather move with courage in order to tell through my life a story of redemption and I'd rather do that than remain silent. Headship is taking the responsibility for the home, for the provision of the family's needs, of the spiritual care of your wife and your children. Now this does not mean, this does not mean that the husband does everything. Absolutely not. Any good leader knows 
That he does not do everything himself, but he delegates and gives away his leadership to others, often delegating to those who are more gifted than him. And guess what, husbands? God has given you someone who is often more gifted than you in many areas of life. It's called your wife. And so, for example, if a husband is responsible, to, he is the one ultimately accountable for God to provide for the financial and the physical needs of his family, does that mean that he must be the one who makes more money than his wife? No. It means that he does what is necessary to ensure that his family is provided for. If that means he says, my wife can make more money in less time to provide for our family, but therefore if someone has to watch the kids, I will come home and watch the kids. If that means, hey, for this particular season, my wife and our priorities mean my, we long, she longs to be at home with our children, and yet my one job is not going to cut it, then he says, I'll take two jobs for my family. It doesn't mean that he necessarily makes more money or that the wife doesn't work outside the home. It means that he's the one who's ultimately saying, I am responsible, and I will do what it takes to provide for my family. And that is how it plays out in each and every area of the family. Ultimately, he views himself as the one responsible for, for God, and he takes that calling seriously, and he stands up, and he speaks for the good of his family through word and deed, for the love of his wife, and for the glory of God in this world. This is what it means to take on headship. And so I ask you, is there an authority structure in marriage? Yes. You cannot get away from it in the text. The Bible gives the husband the authority in the marriage. You cannot get around it. But here's the critical question. An authority as defined by whom? Paul grounds the fact of the husband's headship in the created order with Adam, but he defines that headship through a picture. What's the picture? The picture of Christ's love for the church. And that brings us to our second point this morning, and that is the posture through which we love. And that posture is a one of sacrificial service. Our headship is like the headship of Christ over the church, about his love for his bride. And how did Christ use his headship? He sat in glory in heaven, and he saw his people running and his bride running from him, and he said, well, that's on her. Is that what he said? Now, do you remember what he'd said to Adam and he'd said to Abraham? He said, whether you're faithful to this covenant or not, I will be faithful to my covenant. And so Jesus comes down out of heaven and he comes to save his bride. And when he comes, he doesn't come to crush his bride and to shame his bride. He comes to save his bride. Philippians 2 verse 7 says this, that he, he laid aside his glory and he took on the form of a servant. Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And in John 13, Jesus reveals headship as the position from which we get down on our hands and knees and we wash feet. That is the role of headship. Doesn't it sound like just exactly what Paul says here? We're going to look at it more next week. That the husband is supposed to wash his wife. Where does Jesus wash people? John 13. He gets down from the table and he takes up a basin and a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. 
To love like Christ, husbands, you must take up the posture of Christ, which is this, one of loving, sacrificial servant. In a word, it is dying to self. It is dying to self. Verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That the husband will prioritize, that's what this means, will prioritize her needs at great cost to himself. Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. He met her needs right where she was at. And he did what was necessary in order to meet her needs. We needed forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and adoption. And that was only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so therefore, husbands, what is the need your wife has? How has God called you to use that positional authority not to remain as this place who simply gets to be the one who makes decisions, but in order to serve your wife? The husband has the call to die. Has the call to die. C.S. Lewis writes that headship of the husband is not expressed in husbands doing what they like. (laughs) But I love this image. But in him whose marriage most looks like crucifixion. (laughs) I say this every once in a while at weddings. I'll describe the men's and the women's role. And I'm like, here's the deal, everybody. You're at a funeral. Both of these people have to die for this marriage to work. But especially this guy. But understand this. This dying to self is to be lived out in the nitty gritty. It's to be done in the daily. This whole dying for our wives language, it conjures up for us as men images of William Wallace and Braveheart charging the enemy or great acts of valor. I don't doubt that there's many men in this room who are willing to die for their wives. Good. You'll die for her. Here's the question. Will you live for her? This is not a one-time act where you go out in a blaze of glory and you get a write-up in the newspaper with your, you and your, your, your cape flapping in the wind about your great sacrifice, how you would die for your wife, but it's a day-by-day, unheralded, it gets no headlines sort of dying. What this means is the husband in a day-in and day-out basis surrenders his own wants and his own preferences to meet her needs. They don't remind their wives, I am the head, by demanding their own way. They remind their wives that they are the head by submitting themselves to their wife's needs. As husbands, we submit ourselves first to the lordship of Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5.21, and then submitting ourselves to the needs of our wife. Authority, authority as it's biblically articulated, is when you embrace sacrificial responsibility for the good of another person. That is what Jesus did for us. Jesus serves his bride, and he serves his bride to the point of being willing to die for his bride. Do you see that Jesus has his life twisted? Twisted in a pattern of beautiful righteousness so that he might love and cover over his bride. If you've been to any of the weddings that I've done, you've heard this story. And by the way, somebody left this exact same story on my desk this week. Show yourself. All right, put your name on it. I, I, was, I was very curious. Somebody, I don't know if it was a, just a, a coincidence that you shared this story with me. I've been sharing this illustration at weddings for years and years and years, and I'll continue to, so you'll hear it at other weddings you come to. Don't give me any flack. I reuse illustrations. But the illustration's from Robert Seltzer, who was a surgeon. He wrote a book called The Art of Surgery. He recounts one of his most vivid memories that stuck with him for years and years was when he did surgery to remove a tumor on a young woman's face. She had not been married for very long, 
But in the midst of the surgery, in order to found that in order to remove the tumor, he had to sever a facial nerve. And when she awoke, she found that her mouth was twisted into a permanent palsy. But what was so vivid in his memory was the response of the young husband. He also said the young woman, in, in taking in her twisted face in the mirror, she asked the doctor, will my mouth always look like this? And the surgeon had to nod, yes. Her eyes fell, and she is silent for a moment, he says, and then she looks up intently, seeking the response of her young husband to this news. And the young husband's response was, well, Seltzer puts it like this, without hesitation, the young husband says, she is beautiful. And without further words, he bends down to kiss his wife. And Sizer says, closes with the most poignant moment of the scene. He says the husband, he bends to kiss his wife in her now twisted mouth. And with her eyes, she's so close that she can see how he must twist his mouth to now fit hers. This is what the beautiful husband does. He's willing to have his life twisted in order to provide the kiss upon his wife. And this is what your Savior has done, in which he was willing to have his life and his body twisted in order to cover over his bride. The loving husband does what is necessary, even even when his bride is difficult to love. And remember, Jesus' bride made things rather difficult for him to love her. But this may be true for you as well. Let's listen. Boys are made of, you know, we have, we're made of rocks and cattails or whatever it is, and women, women are made of sugar and spices and everything nice. But some of you are not married to a woman who's so nice. They are fallen, and they can be difficult. Brian Chappell tells the story of a family from his church that I think displays the life of a husband who's willing to twist his life for his wife, even when she's difficult. From the outside of the home, he said they appeared to have an ideal house. This couple in his church, they had, their home was beautiful, their couple was attractive, their kids were sweet, were really sweet, but in reality, things were very, very difficult. You see, the wife, oddly enough, had a gambling addiction. She had struggled with this addiction for years. Counseling, clinics, pastors, nothing seemed to help. When acting out of her addiction, she would do things that were profoundly destructive to her family. She would siphon money from the family bank accounts. She would pawn the family valuables. She would open credit cards in her husband's name. And despite the fact that the husband was an executive for a company and made a, a rather significant income, the scope of her addiction put the family on the edge of bankruptcy. And the damage certainly wasn't just financial. It was relational. It was impossible to measure the impact of a spouse who stole from her family, who lied time and time and time again to cover over her addiction, who destroyed the family's security. And the message of the world to this man in Chapel's church was, get out. You don't have to keep going like this. Get out. And even Chapel said, said in a profound display of sacrificial and faithful love, the husband would not leave. He would forgive time and time again. Oh, yes, he would hold his wife accountable. He would take precautions to protect the family funds. He would not allow his wife to give herself over to pure despair about her addiction. He required that she continue to go to church and that she see a counselor and she get the help that she needed. But he would also love her daily by giving dignity to her, by asking for her counsel still. 
by giving her the continued areas of leadership where she was gifted in the home. He honored her dignity and her image bearing, even in that fallen state. And Chapel said that at one point, he even asked the young man why he had not walked away from this nightmare of a marriage. And the man said this, my children need her, but more than that, they need to know the Lord. How can they know the Father in heaven who forgives them if their father on earth will not forgive their own mother? And how can my wife know the love of God for her if the spiritual leader in her home will not love her despite her faults? You may not have the bride from heaven. She may make life difficult. But husbands, your call is to stay, to take responsibility, and to sacrificially love. That is so right. Greater love is this than no man then we see that he lays down his life for his wife day in and day out. So you ask, how am I supposed to live like that? I, I'm just exhausted when I get home. How can I sacrifice in this way? So, I mean, I, if you're like me, you feel the inadequacy just in and of yourself. You don't need another call of this grand and majestic and large to go, well, I feel like a failure. I already felt that way. I already knew I didn't measure up. So what do you need? Let me say this, you need to go back to your creational call. Last week we looked at the creational call of women as the Azair, the helper, a strong arm of help. You know, in Genesis chapter 127, women are called Azairs, but the man, the Hebrew word for man there is the Hebrew word zakar. The word zakar literally means, means this, the remembering one. That's a curious word to describe a man, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't we rather have it to be like the strong one, by the way, which is what the name Andrew means? <laughs> the one who leads or the powerful one. But instead, man is described as the one who remembers. Why? What is a man supposed to remember? Should he be better remembering like where he left his keys? Or remembering what to get from the grocery store? If that is the remembering, I am failing all the time. I must call five times when I'm at the grocery store. If that's what it means for a man to be a remembering one, then only the most compulsive and anal retentive of us us, are are doing okay. Now, to close, let me say that there are three things that men you're you're supposed to remember as you are overwhelmed by this call. You're remembering these things. First, you remember the past provision of God. Remembering is a theme repeated throughout the Bible. When the people of God would gather for worship, they confessed their sins and they prayed, and one of their leaders would stand among them, and then you know what they would do? They would start to retell the wondrous works of God. Go read the Psalms. Over and over and over again, they are autobiographical kind of narrative accounts of what God has done. The retelling of the old stories conveys a vital message, and here's the message. God is faithful to his people. And that when you are weak, he is strong. And time and time again, that when you feel like you don't have it, he will intervene on your behalf. He has proved his goodness. He has proved his faithfulness. So you take courage, for your God is faithful. You know, here's a word just to remember. We sing it, and it's always in come thou fount. It's always the word that everyone kind of goes, what does that mean? You know the word Ebenezer? 
It comes from the, the, the time when the Philistines approached Israel to do battle, and the prophet Samuel had to offer a sacrifice. And in the response to the sacrifice, the Lord thundered down, and he threw the enemy Philistines, who were stronger in number, into a complete panic, enabling Israel to rout them easily. And so Samuel took up a stone, and he set it up, and he did sacrifices on that stone, and he said, this stone is an Ebenezer, which means God is my help. God has helped me. And from that day on, whenever people would pass that stone, they remembered the faithfulness of God. That in their time of weakness, God was my help. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. An Ebenezer is a place of sacrifice that remains to remind us, you know, we have a much greater Ebenezer, don't we? The cross of Jesus Christ is the altar in which we have the provision of Jesus that says to us, I have provided where you are weak, I am strong. Next week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper, and we will repeat the words of institution. What are those? We're going to take the bread, and we're going to take the cup, and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So one, remember God's past provision. Second, remember the present calling of God upon your life. You're a rememberer. Remember God's call on your life. You look at the call to love your wife as Christ of the church, and you go, I, am, I can't do that. I am incompetent to do that. And you know what? You are. You can't do this. You are not able to do this on your own. But men, this is not a role about competency. This is a role that is about calling. This is not about your competency. It's about your calling. And you say, I will live into my present calling even when I don't feel confident because I am the responsible one. I have a calling of God on my life, and it is this, to love this woman as Christ loved the church. And that leads us to the third thing you to remember. You remember the future, future promised by God. And what's that promise? He said, I'll go with you wherever you go. We usually use the Great Commission to talk about discipleship. It's a commission, it's a mission. It's Jesus looking at a bunch of men and saying, men, I have a mission for you. And it's bigger than you can handle. But in the Great Commission, what does Jesus says in verse 18, picking up in Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus came to him and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You think you have authority? I have authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. And so God looks at us and he says, listen, you may feel incompetent to this role, and you are, but I am the competent one. And I am not leaving you, husbands. The good news, when God calls you to do something, he also says, I'm going with you. Let's do it together. He doesn't throw you out there and then leave you to it. No, he provides you the strength that you need. And so husbands cry out to the Lord and say, spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. When he calls you to do something, he's going to give you what you need to get the job done. God says, I will work in you what is pleasing in my sight. And what pleases him is when husbands sacrificially lay down their lives for their wife. And so when you're on the drive home this week from work, and you're in that 10 to 15 minute time zone when you're going, I am so tired. And what awaits you as a home of children, a wife who is exhausted, 
You cling to these things. This is my call. This is my call. And he has always provided. And he will walk with me as I walk into that home to love my wife, to love my children. And with that, you'll be able to get up and keep going. You'll keep going. Well, you'll keep going, but we're done for today. But we'll keep going on this topic again next week. Let's pray and be done. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel in marriage. That marriage is this lovely and profound play and drama that we get to see the gospel. And yet, Lord, it is, um, it is overwhelming to us. So I just called men to pray and ask, as it says in Ephesians chapter 5, 18, that we need to be filled with the Spirit for this task. And so, Lord, I pray that you would now hear the prayers. We, I give men about 10 seconds of silence to say, Lord, would you fill me up with your Spirit for this task? Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd fall fresh on me, that you would break me of my arrogance, melt me of my selfishness, mold me away from my passivity, so that in my life, Lord, you may be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.